Book of Jonah, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, and maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And so they asked him, Tell us, who, uh, or what kind of work do you do? Who's, uh, who are you, and who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what do we need to do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Well, you can pick me up and you can throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah, and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It's a powerful chapter. The book of Jonah is a book that brings us again to a storm, and it seems to be a common theme throughout scriptures that the Lord uses storms for one purpose or another in people's lives. He may be the one who is calming the storm, like we so know Jesus to do famously in the Gospels with the disciples, when they were terrified of the storm and was just with a word spoken. The storm calmed. But it may be at times that the Lord, like he is doing here in the book of Jonah, we see in scriptures that he's the one who's behind the storm, who has brought on the storm. And the storm is in his design and his purposes to bring disaster. And so here we come into the book of Jonah, and and Jonah is a prophet of God. He's not someone who's just starting out as a prophet. He's mid-career as a prophet. He knows his God whom he serves. He's already been in service to him. And God comes to him and he says to him, get up and go to the great city Nineveh. It's It's an amazing city, but he says it's also a wicked city. And your job, Jonah, is you're going to preach to them, and you're going to preach against their wickedness. That's what I want you to do, Jonah. And Jonah says, 
sayonara. And he goes the complete opposite direction. And as fast as in like a Looney Tune cartoon, there's just a puff of smoke and Jonah is on his way to Joppa to get a ticket, to ride a boat, all the way to Tarshish, which is a long ways away across the sea. It's hilarious because it's the complete opposite direction that he was told to go from God. So he gets on this boat, the storm comes, he tells the men, if you want the storm to calm down, you've got to throw me overboard. <laughs> We're going to get into that. All right? They throw him overboard, and we get to what Jonah is famous for in chapter 2. When Jonah is swallowed up by a fish, you're like, I don't believe that. Then you don't believe the Bible. If you don't believe that a man can be swallowed by a giant fish and live and survive, you don't believe that God split the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through it, you don't believe Jesus turned water into wine, you don't believe that Jesus healed the sick, that he raised the dead, you don't believe he came back from the dead, you don't believe that the Bible is speaking truth about spiritual things that are beyond the physical reality that we see. This is a word that is not like the words of men, but it is the word that has come from the living, eternal God. The God who transcends the heavens and the earth that he has made. And so this fish swallows Jonah, and he goes down into the sea, he repents, and then after he repents, God causes the fish to vomit him up. And i got to imagine, he wasn't way out far away from the shore, so you got to imagine like a fish swimming up onto the beach and sort of, and all slimy, Jonah sort of rolls out. The fish goes back into the water, and Jonah sort of wipes himself off, gets some wet wipes, right? Charles, you're going to, maybe Charles hands him a few wet wipes, and he cleans off. And then he goes to the city of Nineveh in obedience to God, and he preaches, and the worst possible thing that Jonah was, a, was afraid of happening happens. Nineveh repents. They repent, they turn from their wicked ways, they hear what he says, and they turn to his God in obedience, and they stop what they were doing. And Jonah in chapter 4 is furious. Go over to chapter 4. He's looking, he's, got like, he's up on some sort of hill off outside of, jo- outside of uh, Nineveh, right? He preached for 40 days, and then he went up on this place, and he's sitting there, and he's watching. And he's just hoping, and hoping, and hoping. And he's praying, which is ironic, <laughs> that, God, that he will see the fire start to come down and destroy Nineveh. That's what he wanted. But instead, they repent and God spares them. And look what he says in chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, Look, God, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? That that is what I tried to forestall or prevent by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. I know all this about you, God, and that you are a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die if Nineveh gets to live. If they live, I want to die. But man, my life will be worth living if you would just burn them to the ground. He hated Nineveh. That's the prophet of God. <laughs> Look, the, just here, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but the point of Jonah is that the man of God has to care like God for the people that God cares for. That's the point. Back to chapter 1. This book is famous for its fish, but you will see powerful themes going through the entire book of Jonah. You will see the mercy of God. You will see the, that you cannot run away from God. You will see the preaching to the nations. 
These are, these are macro themes that thread all throughout the scriptures. You see them coming through Jonah. When a prophet won't prophesy. <laughs> the stubbornness of, a, of God's man. God's love for the wicked. Man, that just abounds in this book. God's love for the nations. His faithfulness uh, or faithfulness to God's call and consequences for disobedience. And today we're only going to cover chapter 1. And my hope is that each of us would, would walk away from this chapter where we see one of God's own running away from him. That we would see his example. And today we would have more conviction to not run away from God, but to run towards God and to run with God. That's what my hope is. That's just, if you walk away today more eager for Jesus Christ, more hungry for righteousness, a greater desire and zeal for the things of God, the word of God, then this sermon will have succeeded. And I'll be worth whatever greeting you just gave. Whatever introduction, Mike, you just gave. So Jonah runs. That's our first header that we're going to be doing today. I don't know, you guys might have even done this. I don't do PowerPoint at home, so I'm just going to trust you got it back there, Joe. Uh, Look at verse 3 with me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship bound for that port, right? And he pays the fare, and then he sails for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The Lord sent a great wind, a violent storm. The sailors became afraid, verse 5. They all began to pray to their own God and toss things off the boat to lighten the ship. But Jonah went down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Okay? So God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. He goes the complete opposite direction. Nineveh was east. Jonah went west. And when he got to the port in Joppa, he asked what boat was going the farthest. That's, I think it's not in the text, but I believe he said, excuse me, which boat is going to the farthest ends of the earth right now? That would be Tarshish today, sir. That's the one I want. I don't want to be anywhere near Nineveh. I want to get away from Nineveh. And so we notice how it says twice in these verses here that Jonah was running away, look at it, from the Lord, verse 3. And then notice in verse, uh, where was it here? It's verse 3. He ran away from the Lord, and then look at down at the end of verse 3 again. He sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And I take note of that. That really stands out to me. Because you have to ask yourself the question, how do you run away from a God who is everywhere? How do you get away from a God and out of the presence of a God who is omnipresent, always and everywhere present? Go to Psalm 139 with me. Somebody else felt this. If you're in Jonah, keep your finger in Jonah and go back to Psalm 139. Look at verse 7. Here's King David, right? Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Oh, Jonah, you needed these words, buddy. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and, uh, 
and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And here King David is comforted by the fact that God is everywhere, and he can never escape the, bra- the very presence of God. There's nowhere that he could go, to the north, south, east, or west, this side of the sea or the other side of the sea, where he would escape the presence of God and be alone. It was a comfort for him in this, this psalm. But it was a frightening thing and a discouraging thing for the prophet Jonah to realize and know that there's no way he could get out of the presence of God. Now, he's a prophet. He knows these things. He knows he can't get out of the presence of God. He knows who his God is. It's not actually getting away from his presence because what we see is running away from the Lord, and this is key, running away from the Lord is really referring to Jonah's disobedience. He was running away from the purpose that God had for him. You want me to go that way? I'm going that way. You want me to go that way? I'm going that way. Whatever your whatever direction you're pointing me in, God, I'm going the other direction. Because what you want for me, I don't want for me. And so Jonah is really exercising his his disobedience against God by going in the complete opposite direction. It was not a physical proximity to God. It was a rejection of God's a rejection of God's authority over him to call him and command him to go where God wanted him to go. That was his disobedience. And here's where we start to see, I think, ourselves in Jonah. How many times do we willfully disobey what we know God wants us to do? And oftentimes we can find ourselves going even further than Jonah and perhaps justifying our disobedience as we are in the middle of it. Here's an application. You can run, but you can't hide from God. And the truth is, and the truth is, if you are a child of God, eventually you will no longer be able to run either. Because God does not quit the chase when it is one of his own. Those whom I love, Jesus said, I rebuke and I discipline. God is more committed to us than we, think about this, than we are committed to our disobedience and our running from God. Think about that when you realize, think about this, when you realize if you're reading Jonah, you you can go back to Jonah, you don't have to stay in Psalm 139, but if you go back to Jonah, okay, Notice what's hap- what God's reaction to Jonah. So you have Jonah reacting to God and saying, I'm running away. God does not go find another man. It, it's like Moses. Remember when God called Moses and he said, uh, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh and tell him what I'm telling you right now. And Moses says, I'm not a good speaker. Find somebody else. Moses starts... Moses starts throwing excuses out left and right, like, I'm not your man. I'm not a guy who is, I, I'm not gifted in this way. It's really not my calling. You know, and it, it's not like, this isn't really my thing, God. I'm not good at this. I can herd these sheep in these hills. I just can't go do that. Did God go find somebody else? 
No, Moses, you're going to go. Here's the, the, the thing is, is, is just like Moses came around, and just like even Gideon came around as he hemmed and hawed, Jonah was eventually going to come around as well to God's will. As far as God is concerned, he can do it the easy way, or he can do it the hard way. Jonah, when God chooses a man, he will get that man. And Jonah can't run from the Lord, and he knows that. He's been a prophet for a while. It's just that he's mistakenly thinking that there's a clause in his contract with God that, he can't, that this is an at-will employment. Jonah believes that if there's a job opportunity, if God has a job for him, he has a right to decline that job. As though somehow the, the ultimate say in what to do resides with him as a man. And God says, yes, this is an at-will employment, Jonah. My will. My will. I want you to do what I want you to do, and we're going to get around to that. The vision of Jonah running can serve as an illustration for any disobedience in our lives as believers. He wasn't running from the presence so much as the purpose of God. And that's what disobedience is. It's shunning God's purpose for our lives. And I'm not talking about our purpose in the sense of what is, am I called into ministry? Am I called to go to a different country? Am I supposed to do this job or that job or anything? I'm talking about the purpose that is universal for all believers in Jesus Christ, all those who have faith in history, and that is to live righteously, to live according to the commands that God has given to us in his word, to carry out in our lives righteousness as he has laid it out for us in the scripture. The first thing that Jonah, or excuse me, the first thing that the Lord does is he works the sea into a vicious fury. You see that? Verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break. You may have left Nineveh behind, uh, Nineveh behind Jonah, but you didn't leave God behind. He's coming to you and coming for you. So the ship is in danger, according to verse 5. It's about to be broken into pieces. It's, the storm is threatening everybody on the ship, and they're going to sink. And the sailors do two things. Notice from the text that the sailors do two things. uh, Verse 5. All the sailors were afraid, and number one, each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. These guys are experienced seamen, and they're terrified. Now keep this in mind because something is going to come up that is going to terrify them even more than the storm. But the question in all of this is where is Jonah? Where's Jonah in all of this? And we were reading that Jonah, in the middle of this storm, while there's all this chaos, and the the boat is rocking back and forth, right? And the, the waves are splashing over top of it. Things are creaking, and things are breaking and snapping. And men are screaming, and men are calling out to their various pagan gods, right, to hear them and ease the storm and save them. And men, you can hear the sploosh even of like, crates being thrown overboard and things and there's all this chaos and Jonah is sleeping like a baby in the basement of the ship he goes downstairs to just get away from it all and he's sleeping during all of this I think Jonah was sleeping what I would call this the sleep of indifference he was indifferent to the storm it didn't bother him he wasn't scared of it I think he welcomed it why 
because the storm was the consequences of his disobedience. And what I mean by that is this. It means that Jonah was content with the consequences of his disobedience because he would not be happy with the consequences of his obedience to go and preach to the Ninevites. I would rather be on this ship in the middle of this storm with this thing going down to the bottom of the sea, God, and losing my life than being in Nineveh right now. This is where I would rather be. This somehow is more preferable. Um, here's an application. A couple applications. So one is this. is God is perfectly willing to bring storms into our lives when we are going in a wrong way. God will do that. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 39. I was just reading this the other day, and it, and it, and it stuck out to me. Psalm 39. God is perfectly willing to bring disaster or storms into our lives when we are going in a wrong way. Some storms are not the consequences of sin in our life. Some storms are God and whatever his purposes are. They may be for maturing us. They may be for pruning us. They may be for growing us from the strong faith we have to even stronger. Not everything is because of Jonah-like disobedience. Some storms, however, are. And it's good for us believers to search our hearts before the Lord and to seek his purposes in all of this. Sometimes we're Job, and sometimes we're Jonah, and we need to determine that. But Psalm 39, verse 9 says this, I was silent, I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. God, remove your scourge from me. I, have, I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. And it's the, it's the, it's the cry of the psalmist in his anguish that he knows that God is behind in his life. That it is the chastisement of the Lord on him. He's not crediting it to Satan. How quick are we right to give, well, this is Satan's doing. He may be Satan's doing under the permission of God. But let's not be too quick to give credit to Satan for everything when some things may be actually needed to be attributed to God to humble us before him. So it's healthy for us as God-fearing Christians to prayerfully, humbly contemplate how God might be using the storms in our lives for his purposes. Secondly, we see that Jonah gets ID'd. So let's go back to the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah, he gets ID'd. So the sailors are praying, and nobody is picking up on the other line. The storm is getting worse. They're running out of time and hope. And so they have this epiphany. Verses 7 through 10. Then the sailors said to each other, Hey, come, let us cast lots, guys, and let's find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, hey, tell us who you are. Tell us where you're from. What kind of work do you do? Who's the God that you serve? Like all that stuff, right? So they go on asking him this stuff. Jonah's the culprit. Now, as a side note before we go further with this, while casting lots is common in the Bible, I wouldn't advise it 
in determining who your next pastor is or who another pastor is, or when determining, uh, in determining a job. There are things I wish that, as a parent, I could cast lots for. Which one of you, seven, has been picking the M&Ms out of the trail mix? Right? So there's nothing worse than going into the trail mix jar and all of a sudden all it is is peanuts and M&Ms. If you don't confess your sins and repent with a broken and contrite heart right now, I will cast these lots and I will find you out. That's what I wish I could cast lots for. You can tell that was bothering me last week. So Jonah answers them in verse 9. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And they were terrified at that. And why are they terrified, you guys? They're terrified of the storm, but they were more terrified of what Jonah's response to them was. And the reason they were terrified is because they now knew that Jonah's God was unstoppable. In a way, what was happening on that ship was a competition of gods. Whose God could hear? Because they were all crying out to multiple gods. They were crying out to every god that they could possibly think of in that moment. You know, it was that foxhole moment, right? They're going to call on anyone and everyone who might possibly hear and pick up. Whose God would have mercy? Whose God would be able to stop the storm and rescue them? Not one God they prayed to heard, or came to their rescue. And now they knew why. Because the God of Israel, the maker of the heavens and the earth, was behind all of this. And they were completely at his mercy. So the sea is getting worse, and, and it's only reinforcing in their minds that their gods were no match for Jehovah. No, ha- no, no help to them in this situation. And so they turn to Jonah and they say, what do you want us to do with you? Which is an interesting turn of it. Which is an interesting question, right? They're totally desperate at this point. What do we need to do to you to stop all of this? Which brings us to the third point, Jonah overboard. Look at verses 11, verse 11 with me. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. They asked him, what should we do to make the sea relax and calm down for us? Verse 12, (laughs) pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. (laughs) <laughs> and then it'll become calm for you. I know it's my fault because all this is happening, so uh, if you really just want to put an end to this, right there, guys. Right there. So, do you notice, look what it says in the next verse. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. These men care more about Jonah and his life than Jonah cared about his own life. These men cared more about Jonah's life than Jonah cared about theirs. Jonah would have gone to the bottom of the sea with them on that ship. Jonah wasn't doing a thing to save these men from what he had brought onto them. And exactly, it's, a, it's actually, it's coming to mind right now. I didn't even think about this until right now. What a picture of what he was actually doing to Nineveh. He would be perfectly happy for them to sink to the bottom of the sea and not be saved. He doesn't care about Nineveh. 
He doesn't care about these sailors. He doesn't care about his own life. That's the problem with Jonah. The one who should know better and the one who should care more than anyone else about the souls of men is the one who cares the least. Why should he care the most? Because he knows God. And because he should, in the service of God, care like God cares for the souls of men. But he's the one who cares the least in this moment. And he doesn't care who suffers because of his actions right now. Remember, he didn't run up from the basement in his nap to tell them, I just want to give you guys an out here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. Ready? That wasn't what he did. They went to him. They sought him out. And only after they sought him out, huddled up in the corner of his bunk, did he finally tell them how they could be saved. Yeah. Jonah doesn't care. There's a psychology of disobedience that's taking place right here. And I think it relates to us. Jonah served God on his terms. Jonah's terms. Jonah felt that he could reserve the right to decline something that God had commanded him to do. Do we as those who are in the carrying out of the Great Commission, learning the teachings and the commands of Jesus Christ, Matthew 28 says. Teach them to obey my commands, Jesus says, right? As disciples of Jesus Christ, it is our life to obey and to pursue what God has instructed us to do. And, and, and here, Jonah is an example of us too often in life, isn't it? Where we say, I like this command or these commands, but I don't like those. I reserve the right, Lord, at the end of the day to decide that which I will obey and that which I won't obey. It's a, it, Jonah is in need, and I think like myself, in different ways throughout different seasons of my life, God teaches me these things where I begin to learn, like, okay, that's an area that I've not surrendered to you. And I'm not talking about a situation that's out of my control that I can't control and, and what I want to happen in that situation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I've been willfully disobeying you, God, in this way, and you've been letting me do it all this time out of your mercy, and you're really laying it on my heart now and showing me, either through consequences or just conviction, that it's time to stop and it's time to turn this over to you so that what you want for my life in this area, I begin to carry out. Another application is this, how irrational Jonah's actions were, right? It's like the irrationality of disobedience. Like, it, it, it's Jonah thinks that it's better to suffer the consequences of his disobedience than it is to carry out obedience in his life and the results of what will happen from obedience. Like, somehow he's able, he would rather be drowning on that boat. I mean, it, it's like, here, let's go to the New Testament and use a parable of Jesus. That's kind of a correlation, Right? How much are you going to have your face stuffed in the pig trough, prodigal son, before you realize your face is in the pig trough? How much pig food do you have to eat? Utterly impoverished because you wasted everything your father gave you away. You have nothing to offer or to show for, for, for what your father gave you. And, you. and here you are prodigal son, and you're eating pig food with pigs next to you because that's what you've been reduced to in your disobedience. Like, how much of the storm do you have to endure before you realize, I, you know what, I think, I think 
it's, it is better to obey. I'm, I'm ready to leave this all behind. I'm ready to serve God now and leave it all behind. After trying to row back to shore, the, 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 the sailors um, are, are not able to. Um, as strong and as bulky as they are, they don't have the strength to row that baby back to shore. The storm keeps getting worse. I'm like, man, talk about God being behind that. Like, all right, row harder, guys. And then God's like, no, blows the storm even harder. You guys aren't going anywhere until you give me what I want. Give me what I want. So a couple big muscular sailors pick them up, and they say a little prayer. Did you see the prayer at the end? They're like, hold it. You can see the captain going, okay, hold it. Don't throw them just yet. Lord, this is what he's saying. <laughs> you saw us trying to spare his life. He hasn't done anything to us. Well, he has. We're in this mix because of him, but we don't want to do this. <laughs> you know? And over he goes, splash, and splash, and then instant glass across the entire sea. Clouds roll back, sun begins to shine. You can almost hear the words of Jesus. Be still. Instant calm. I don't want to read too much into it, but there seems to be a parallel between Jonah going into the sea, into the sea, and it calms down, and Jonah going into the city of Nineveh, preaching, and the city calms down from its sin. What a picture that would be. And there's a picture, too, here of Jesus that I want to bring out. And I want to see if you can see this with me. What's happening here is that God's man must be sacrificed to the wrath of the sea in order to take the storm away and save the men. See that? God did not demand one of those sailors and his life. He didn't demand, he didn't, think about this. <laughs> In the same way, God demands the life of one man to be offered up, thrown overboard, so to speak, on the cross. And when he goes to the cross and is offered up there, then that man of God's choosing, the Lamb of God, through his sacrifice and his death, takes away the wrath, the sea of God's wrath towards mankind and spares mankind who was caught in the middle of the storm of God's wrath. Do you see the parallel there? Do you see the, 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 the picture there of what's going on with Jonah? And listen, did you see what this is? This demands that, what this is saying to us is this, is that, God was not going to take the life of one of the sailors. He didn't want it. He wouldn't accept it. If one of the sailors said, I will sacrifice myself, gentlemen, live good lives, Godspeed, and throws himself overboard, God would have let the man die and the storm would have rolled on because his life was not the life that God had designed and, and, and demanded. And in the same way, there's one life that God demanded. There's one life that God planned that through the death of that one life, all men would be able to have life. And it is the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who suffered and died for the sins, not of himself, you guys, but the sins of the world. 
Jesus did. And you notice what else the sailors were doing until they arrived at that point? They, <laughs> when you realize you are in, when, when you realize you're not right with God and you're realizing, how do I get right with God? Do, do I begin to toss things overboard in my life? Do I stop doing bad things and get them out of my life? Do, do I call out and look to and lean on and rely on things that are not God? Do I call out to my gods to save me from what I'm in or the, the, the devastation I'm suffering? Just like these sailors, we look to everything and try everything in our own strength and, and look to all the wrong things to get out of what we are in the middle of or for God to change things in our lives when God says there's only one way for the storm to stop. You've got to offer the man that I offer. So stop. We must stop throwing things overboard. We must stop reforming ourselves that hopefully God will look at the reformation we've done in our lives and God will accept it. And instead, we have to look to the one that God has sent. And we have to offer him, just like they offered Jonah, to turn around and offer God Jesus back. And saying, I look to him. The only thing I can give you, God. The only thing I can give you, God, for you to be pleased with me, for you to accept me, the only thing I can give you is the very one that you gave for me. I give you Jesus. He's my representative. He's my high priest. He's my intercessor. He's my substitute. I don't have a sacrifice to offer you, God, except the Lamb of God that you sacrificed on the cross. He's my one and my only hope and my one and my only salvation. And that's what we see here. Steamboat Bill. Have you guys ever heard of uh, Steamboat Bill? One of the most famous movie stunts ever performed. We'll end with this right here. One of the most famous movie stunts that, were ever, that was ever performed was by Buster Keaton in the 1926 movie Steamboat Bill. So if you like stunts, like I, like, I, I watch like those YouTube videos of, of Tom Cruise doing all of his own stunts. I'm like, you got a weird religion, but you do some fantastic stuff, man. You know, like you are, you are incredible, dude. Uh, but Buster Keaton is like the forerunner to Tom Cruise. And in this 1926 movie, Steamboat Bill, there's this scene where the hurricane is raging, right? And the stunt was this, that the house that they had set, that was built up, the whole front of the two-story house was supposed to fall down. And there was an attic window that was going to be left open, and there was an exact place. Yeah, you see, right? Buster Keaton was supposed to stand. And as that enormous facade fell down, if, one, if he stood in the correct place, then he would be standing in the one place where as the window was open, it would come down and he would just go right, it would go right around him in the window and he wouldn't be touched as everything crashed down around him. There were people on the set, workers on the set, who were like, I can't do this, I'm leaving. I can't watch the man be crushed to death, you know? And so the, the, the moment comes for this stunt and Buster stands on the tape that was marked X and then, I'm sure, you know, I'm either going to be in, I'm either going to be in movie Hollywood glory if this, if I pull this off, or I'm going to be in glory afterwards, you know. So he does this, right? And, and he's standing in that right spot. The house falls down, and he literally passes right through the attic window with the, the window just inches away from every part of his body. It just goes... The stunt was so frightening. But he didn't die. Do you see why he didn't die? 
because he was standing in the one place that when everything was coming down, he would not be touched by it. It's the only spot that was safe. And the Bible says God's judgment is going to come down. It's going to come down on this world. And the only way for anyone to be safe from his judgment, to be spared from his judgment, is if they would stand in the one and the only place that God has marked X. And it is Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stand where God has called you to come and to stand that you might have life everlasting. Let's pray and we'll finish today. Father in heaven, I pray that you would so move our hearts to you today that, Lord, we would leave behind all this world has to offer, that we would forget the things that are behind and that we would press on towards the things that we have been called to in Christ Jesus. They would not let our eyes fall from that glorious place where he is seated at your right hand and to look at the things around us, but in get, instead, Lord, that we would be firmly fixed with our hearts and our minds focused on him. I pray, God, that we would shed the sin that so easily entangles, that we, Father, would not run from you, but run to you and run for you and run with you, God, knowing that there is no step in this world that counts except those steps that are taken for you as we walk with you. God, I pray that you bless this church, God. What a joy it has been to be together today. And I pray, Father, for your love to come through in the gospel of Jesus Christ, working in the hearts of each one here, turning us to Christ as we stand in him. In Jesus' name we pray.